Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. A science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they felt And I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I am your host, Aaron Barker, and this week we're presenting stories about navigating whiteness in science education. These are both really powerful, relevant stories from Black science educators about how they find their footing in environments dominated by whiteness. I'm really pleased to share them with you today. Our first story is from Mamadou Najaye. It was recorded in May 2019 at Caveat in New York City. The theme that night was Older and Wiser. Hi. Hey, what's up? Uh, I, I have the answers to everything, so just don't ask questions. I'll get to all of them tonight. Uh, I'll explain. So I was raised mostly in Ohio, and I did I hear a woo? That's weird. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ohio gang, we'll talk after this. Um, no, but I was uh, raised in Worcester, Ohio, and uh, as you can see, I'm a black uh, African Muslim person, and uh, that is very hard to do in Ohio. Uh, let's start with black. Uh, Ohio, Worcester, Ohio is 88% white and 12% white, so it's very, <laughs> very difficult to find your footing there. Uh, I'm also from Africa. I am Mauritanian. Anyone know where Mauritania is? Oh, cool, 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 cool. There'll be a quiz after this. Uh, for those of you who don't know, it is not Nigeria, it is not Ghana, nor is it Nigeria. So it is one of the other 54 countries. Uh, yeah, and I'm also Muslim, and uh, right now is Ramadan, so uh, I am struggling. But <laughs> we're going to have a good time. <laughs> But growing up in Ohio, it felt weird. I had to explain things to people all the time because people didn't, they didn't grow up around a lot of black people. They didn't have to grow up around a lot of Africans. They didn't grow up around barely any Muslims. So always had to have the answers for things. And you guys remember like when you were watching a DVD and then like three hours after you were not watching it, the DVD logo would bounce around? That's how I felt growing up all the time, just bouncing around. And what was the most magical moment? When it finally hit that corner. Right? It's been bouncing around. It finally hits that corner. Those are the moments I lived for where I felt like I fully fit in to where I was in Ohio. Very fleeting, but is the meantime in between time when it wasn't really hitting those corners that I had to live with myself? And I was like, 
how am I going to connect to all these people that I'm around? How am I going to connect with kids I'm at school with, to neighbors? I want to know all these answers. So I learned all those things. It became like a survival sort of thing. And a little fun fact about me, my dad's an Africana studies professor. So basically, while kids were going to homecoming, I was writing book reports about Nelson Mandela. So I was like, oh, yeah, you look cute. Well, do you know the ANC did this in 1984? Like, it's like that was my sort of upbringing. So I had to understand all this sort of stuff. And once I got into high school, I started taking psychology classes and I was like oh wow I can understand the way that people interact with each other using these psychological uh, psychological studies I was reading all sort of Piaget and all sort of young I was like oh this is like all the developmental stuff that might explain why I am the way I am why all my peers are the way that they are so I kept studying that graduated from high school I got into college and I was studying neuroscience because I was like oh I'm African this is all I can do to make my parents happy so I'm gonna study neuroscience I kept going down the same track I want to learn about where the neural correlates in the brain were for different types of biases what sort of amygdalic responses people would have or what sort of parts of the prefrontal cortex would light up when you found yourself at a moment of making a decision am I gonna be a little bit racist or am I home am I gonna am I hold my purse a little closer when I'm walking down the street like that's what I wanted to explore that's what I wanted to explore also, I was just like, I wanted to just be around other people and see the way they're looking at the world. Because the school that I went to was actually also in Worcester. Uh, it was the College of Worcester. It has uh, a lot more diversity uh, if you're white. Uh, <laughs> if you're black, it is, you're like, wow, we still outnumbered. So... <laughs> Uh, no, but it was a very wonderful experience that I had at the university, but I found myself in this sort of situation where I kept trying to explain things to people. I kept having people who were black and needed explanations about being African or Muslims. Like, I don't understand these Christian people. I'm like, I don't know, Santa's a whole thing. And like, I had I had to do all that sort of stuff. And I felt found myself always in these positions. And I had questions for myself, too. I wanted to learn about me. I want to learn where I came from, because, you know, being so far away from where I'm from, Mauritania, I didn't really have a lot of people like hang out with for Mauritania here as you can see none of them are here so I had to figure out how to do that I wanted to learn why white people love flat Fleetwood Mac so much like I wanted I had questions so I wanted to understand this sort of stuff but in college it's also time for exploration of yourself in other ways right like I wanted to you know have other hobbies so I DJ uh, and I started doing stand-up comedy uh, because I wasn't invited to be on the improv team I'm not bitter but like I started doing stand-up <laughs> And it was a very fun experience. Uh, I, I think I, I liked the idea of talking about all these hard things I want to talk about. I want to talk about race. I want to talk about gender, LGBTQ issues. I want to do it. But I wanted to do it in a way that wasn't like accusatory and yelling at you. I wanted to do it in a way that was like, it felt like you were getting medicine inside your applesauce. Like, you still going to go to sleep, but like <laughs> the applesauce was rocking, right? Like... <laughs> That's that was what my approach to comedy was, and then I realized like, I feel like there's a lot of people who always ask me, "How'd you go from neuroscience to comedy?" It's really easy. I feel like in order to do any sort of scientific thing, there's a creative element to it. There's so many people who are like doing all this biochem, but also going to go play the violin. There are a lot of people that were out here just like be doing improv, but also going to the biology classes. And I felt like I feel like all the time people will ask me that question. It makes a lot of sense. You're doing a lot of trial and error in science. You're doing a lot of trial and error in comedy. I come up here, I make a joke about Fleetwood Mac. We see if it hits. If it hits, I keep doing it. See, it hits, so I kept doing it. <laughs> Same thing with DJing. If I'm DJing, I play a song, I'm like, oh, cool, cool, I'm gonna play this Lil Wayne song. If it doesn't go well, Fleetwood Mac, and it works well. <laughs> it's trial and error. You change little variables, things get a little bit better, right? 
But then I graduated and I decided, you know what, maybe I don't want to continue doing neuroscience for the rest of my life. I, I love it so much, but I needed to like explore if I could do other things. So I told my parents I was going to be a comedian in New York City. Now, for those of you who don't have African parents, the best job that you can have for an African parent is not a comedian, end of list. So... <laughs> They were not happy with all that, but they've come around on it because they saw that I wanted to still talk about science, and that's why I took a job as a seventh grade science teacher in Bed-Stuy when I moved here. And for those of you, well, spoiler alert, kids are terrible. Uh, um, I, lo I love them so much, but like, I mean, <laughs> how are you so evil? Like, <laughs> like I, I loved my kids <laughs> so much. But like, no, teaching is basically you get paid very little money to be gaslit by 12-year-olds all day. <laughs> you go into class, you say, hey, you throw this pencil? He goes, nah, I didn't throw that pencil. You're like, nah, I saw him throw that pencil. <laughs> You're up at 1 a.m. grading things like, I saw him throw it and I can't prove it. <laughs> and that's teaching. No, but teaching science was something I really liked doing because I liked to instill the sort of curiosity about things that I had growing up into these kids until one day in 2014. December 2014, uh, the police officer who uh, killed Eric Garner was let off. And that day I was ready to go in to teach kids about energy and energy transformations, all that sort of stuff. But when I walked into the classroom, I realized that I was going to be not talking about what they wanted to talk about because they're kids. They don't understand the world. And I told you, I have all the answers and they're looking at me for the answers, but I don't have them. I can't, I don't know how to explain police violence to 12 year olds. Like, I don't know how to explain what the color of their skin means in the world. I don't know when is the right time to do that because I felt like I had to grow through that. I told you I was raised in a very racially homogenous area. How It took me a long time to do it. And I realized that for my entire life, I was explaining myself and how I looked at the world and how the world looked at me to other people, but not letting myself live in that. And now I'm watching kids in the same position I was in growing up trying to understand the world. And I was like, they can't do what I did. So basically, came in, wearing a very nerdy t-shirt, let them know I'm cool, sat down, and we talked through it. We just sat down, and for a moment, I remember being like, I wanna intellectualize this, I wanna make this into like, this sort of study, oh, read this and this and this, but they're 12, they're not doing their homework, they're not gonna read. <laughs> so I'm sitting there and I'm talking to them, and I will tell you that those kids were the most engaged I've ever seen children be, <laughs> ever because they were talking about something that they don't understand it, but they want so desperately to understand it. We came up with a list, talked about gun violence, talked about police violence. I remember one of my kids was bringing up hunting. People have guns for hunting. Then another kid, kid who doesn't talk at all in my classroom, goes, yeah, but people are hunting us with guns. And I was like, I hate that that is your reality. I hate that that is my reality. Why am I not? able to have this sort of clarity at your age to talk about this sort of stuff. I'm at my age right now, like heartbroken that this is the world that you have to grow up in and live in. I think that as a comic and as somebody who has been forced to know all the answers growing up, I spent a lot of time being an observer and not really living my life. Cause I felt like I've always been the funnel. I've been the black ass Jeeves for everyone to get their race 
and Islamic questions through. And honestly, still very speechless. Every time I think about that story, I'm just like, I don't remember feeling more like, wow, I don't even know, understand the world because I spent so much time trying to understand it. But what is my place in that sort of thing? Where do I belong in this sort of narrative about these different stories, these different traumas, the different biases that I'd like to explain to the world? And honestly, I came here with a story that's still in progress. I remember looking into those kids' eyes and seeing them hanging on every single word. And I wish I had that growing up. And I wish that I never had to be the answer dude. <laughs> now I can't be going out to nice white communities and pulling out the diversity. <laughs> no, that's a crazy man's thing. <laughs> but I do believe that in a time where politically and socially everyone has a lot of questions, we need to think about how much we're putting on each other to explain ourselves to other people. We live in a pretty white, homogenous country, world, power structure. And I think that it's very, very important for people to get that information on their own. Because then you end up 27 years old, still wandering the world, being like, where do I fit in? Where do I belong? Because you spent your entire life bouncing between explanation and explanation and explanation and explanation. I, I was invited to the parties. But I kept looking at it through the glass. I wasn't there as a DJ. I wasn't there. I'm playing music for people. I'm not enjoying the party. I'm just doing the thing I'm doing. As a stand-up, I'm in front of you. There's a wall between us. I'm trying to connect through it, but I'm never going to step through it. That's just where I am currently. So I'll leave you with this. Fleetwood Mac. Thank you. <laughs> That was Mamadou Najaye. Mamadou is a New York-based comedian who has written and performed for Mike as a video correspondent. His very first video for Mike, Racism is a Spectrum, went viral, reaching 20 million views. He continued to produce videos in this vein with the platform Seeker. He performs stand-up all around New York City and has written, directed, and performed on the web series Deadass, the live sketch shows Ryan Live and Lo-Fi, MTV News' Decoded, and he's also written for Funnier Dies Newsflash, Michael Moore, and the 2017 Radio and Television Correspondence Dinner hosted by Roy Wood Jr. He's a published neuroscientist, former middle school teacher, improviser, DJ, and activist originally from Mauritania. Our next story today is from Rhonda Key. It was recorded in July 2019 at the Ready Room in St. Louis. The theme that night was Toil and Trouble. The year, 1982. I was walking to my high school and I entered this room on the second floor. In this room, there were test tubes, jars, jars filled of chemicals, biology posters, life-size skeletons. The desks were aligned straight, side by side. I was in this course called biology. The course where mammals, reptiles, birds, and insects feared. Only the smart, the strong, and the elite survived. 
Then came the teacher, Mr. Science, I will call him. He was this well-dressed black male. He had a trim beard and he was dosed, I mean, just covered with cologne. <laughs> he was very articulate. He spoke the King James language, that's what he told us. <laughs> he did not accept Ebonics nor slang in his classroom. He aligned us in our chairs by our last names, and we were called Miss and Mr. Wow, I was Miss. I felt privileged and proud to be in this classroom. Now, if you made an A in this classroom, your name will be placed in the main hallway of the school and you will be part of the smart elite. I made an A in that classroom. I made first chair. My name was in the main hallway of that, hall, of that high school because I made an A. When I saw my name, I knew I was going to major in biology and I was going to be a medical doctor. 1990, I was preparing for an interview. See, I received my biology degree, but I also received a teacher certificate. During that time, I had an opportunity to be a substitute teacher, and I became Mr. Science. My kids were saying, where's my lab coat? I'm not Rachel, my name is Miss Adams. She's teaching us to be doctors and nurses. That converted me. I forgot about the medical school. So that day, 1990, I was preparing for my interview in this small, majority white, conservative town in mid-Missouri, where the sidewalks roll up at 5.30 p.m. <laughs> See, I was confident. I knew I had the job. You know why? Because Mr. Science taught me. I walk in this office, and there sat behind this desk was this white, middle-aged male. He had on a white shirt, short sleeves, and a black tie. I sat, we made pleasantries, and I would call him Mr. H.P. for high school principal. <laughs> he said to me, the kids would not accept you. You are black and you're a woman. They will not respect you because they're not used to someone like you. Immediately, for me, the room got silent. All I saw was his mouth moving. I, in my mind, I saw myself standing up, towering over this person, screaming and yelling, and taking my arms and just clearing his desk. But I did not. I just sat and stared. And from behind him rose, a two-headed serpent hissing. That two-headed serpent for me 
was the black woman's glass ceiling. It was the realism for me, the biasness of gender and race. I felt attacked, I felt defenseless, and I said to myself, where is my protector? Where is my angry black woman with the S upon her chest? Where is she? Come and help me. Then I realized she did not exist for me. I did not know her. So I finally spoke and I said to Mr. HP, how come I'm not good enough? He said, I'm just being honest. I don't want to waste your time. I got up and I walked out and I was walking to my car and I was so, I was confused because my father taught me I can be anything I wanted to be, have any adventures I chose to do. He did not tell me of the two-headed serpent. He did not tell me of the black woman's plight. So on my way to my car, I heard the voice of my mother saying to me, you are black. You have to be twice as good. Well, my cooperative teacher uh, in this area where I was, I was getting ready to say the name, <laughs> would probably get sued. <laughs> uh, a cooperative teacher had convinced the middle school principal to give me a job. So he gave me a job as an in-school suspension supervisor and to teach biology in the summer, only in the summer, not in the fall and spring in the summer. I took it because I wanted to prove Mr. H.P. wrong. All right, my first day of summer school, I walked to my room. The custodian was there and I asked him to open the room. Who are you? Do you belong in that room? All visitors go to the main office. I said to him, I am not a visitor. I belong in that room and I am a teacher. At that moment, my angry black woman was born and became <laughs> an infant. Now, Kids came in, sat in their seats. Of course, they were looking at me, who is she? So I began to talk, and one student began to talk over me. I said, would you please be quiet? I'm talking. He said, shut up, you black bitch. Hmm. At that moment, I saw Mr. H.P. and the Two-Headed Serpent. Only in time that moment. So I said to Mr. Red, because this was a white boy, red hair, freckled face, had on a uh, General Lee uh, Dukes of Hazard t-shirt, straight leg jeans, and some muddy, buddy cow cowboy boots and he had a smirk on his face. 
Give me some water. <laughs> so I said, hmm, Mr. Red, you and I are going to be great friends, what I mean by teacher and student, because you're an honest student. Yes, I am black. Yes, I can be a bitch. But the next time you call me black bitch, it's Miss Black Bitch. And I said, I will not shut up because I want you to graduate. I want you to have a high school diploma. So if Crickus was in that room, it would have been playing a symphony. <laughs> Everybody stared and myself and Mr. Red stared at each other. Mr. Red, he stepped back, retaliated. In my mind, I said, checkmate. And the class began. At the end of the class, I was walking to my car. And I got in my car that day, and I, I still remember. I was so angry because I said, why did this student, white male, feel so comfortable to call me out, tell me to close my mouth, call me a dog, and put me in my place? Why did he feel that comfortable to do that? I was angry. That time, my angry black woman became a teenager. 1992, I am still at this middle school. I'm in school suspension, supervisor, and I'm teaching summer school biology. I had a visitor that day. This tall black male, he was assistant principal at the high school, the only black administrator during that time. He came into my office, he was well dressed and he had pretty white teeth, I remember that. And he said to me, we're gonna offer you a job. We got a full-time biology position at the high school for you. I said, do Mr. HP, the high school principal, know you're here offering me this job? He said, yes, he sent me. And I mean, he was so proud to say that to me, like he was offering me a brand new car. So I got up, <laughs> we went eye to eye, I stuck my chest out and I said, I declined. So he got up and walked away. The next day, Mr. HP called me, the high school principal on the phone, and he says, Rhonda, now he didn't call me Miss Key. Rhonda, we have this full-time bi biology position. We want you to take it. I said, I declined with glee. I remained at the middle school as an in-school suspension supervisor, and I taught, continued to teach summer school biology. I did that because I wanted to stay in a space where people did not want to see my face. I wanted to stay there on my terms, and I did. That day, when I declined, my angry black woman grew into womanhood. My angry black woman would never retire. She is still with me today. As an assistant principal, I mean, sorry, as assistant superintendent. I continue to use my voice for black women, young women, children, women of all races, I will continue to use my voice and speak out 
for those women who cannot speak for themselves, are unable to speak for themselves, are fearful to speak for themselves, my angry black woman still speaks for them. Thank you. That was Rhonda M. Key. Rhonda has served as a teacher and administrator in suburban, rural, and urban school districts throughout her career. Currently, she serves as assistant superintendent of Jennings School District. Under her purview is the former principal and director of secondary education community partnerships. Jennings Senior High School achieved 100% graduation and job placements for the past three years. In 2014, she was named as one of the five women to make a difference in the Decatur-Macon County area of Illinois. And in March 2019, she was named Principal of the Year by the St. Louis Association of Secondary School Principals. She is also the co-owner and founder of Key Ming Educational Design, LLC, as well as an educational consultant and the co-author of articles regarding urban education. StoryClider is so grateful for Mamadou and Rhonda and for their stories. We're also grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. StoryClider is led by me, Artistic Director Aaron Barker, as well as Executive Director Liz Neely, with help from Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg, Operations Manager Lindsay Cooper, and the rest of our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by me, Aaron Barker, Tracy Rowland, Eli Chen, and Emma Young. The podcast is edited by senior podcast editor Jun Chen with help from Gwen Hogan. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Caveat and the Ready Room for hosting these shows and to everybody out there navigating these issues in science and beyond right now. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.